Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. When you think about the Catholic Church, you may be tempted to think in terms that are outside of history. The Church is more or less the same since Jesus' time, right? The continuity is supposed to be obvious, untouchable. Of course, that's impossible. No matter how much we may try to preserve something, the steady march of time, those slow and plodding changes to society and culture, as well as those unforeseen events, inevitably impact even the most resilient of institutions. Today's episode is a deep dive into one of those perhaps unforeseen events that upended Catholicism, and in particular, the papacy, as we know it. In fact, how we understand both Catholicism and the papacy today traces directly back to this moment in history. My guest today, Father Jeffrey Von Arks, is a visiting professor of the history of Christianity at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, and the superior and director of the John Lafarge Jesuit House of Studies at Harvard University. Two more important lines from Father Von Arks's resume. He was the president of Fairfield University while I was a student there, and he also presided at my wedding. Father Von Arks guides us through the years spanning the French Revolution through the First Vatican Council and beyond and reflects on how a near-death experience for the papacy following the French Revolution led to what he believes is an experience of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in the church. He shares what he sees as the outcome of this institutional PTSD with us today. It's hard to fathom a time when the papacy almost ceased to exist, particularly in the wake of papacies like John Paul II's and, and Francis's. And yet, as Father Von Arx notes, the papacy as we know it today didn't have to be this way, and in fact was really close to not existing at all. The Jesuits play a role in this story too, having suffered their own near-death experience during the same era. And though it's tempting to think of this historical deep dive as unrelated to our own lives, what happened to the Catholic Church between the French Revolution and the First Vatican Council has impacted how we Catholics today experience our faith, our culture, and our traditions, not to mention how we interact in society, in politics, and even in art. If you want to dig deeper into Father Van Arx's work, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to receive weekly reflections from me, head over to jesuits.org weekly. Here's my conversation with Father Jeff Van Arx. Father Von Arx, welcome to AMDG. Thanks for being with us today. It's a great pleasure. Uh, well, and I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Obviously, you're a historian um, by, by training, and, and I'm really excited to dig into this very um, specific moment in, in church history. But before we do that, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing these days, um, and, and about kind of how you came into this, this particular realm of historical work. Sure. Well, uh, Eric, as uh, you would know, uh, my, my last job was as a president of Fairfield University, your own, your own alma, alma mater. Go Stacks! <laughs> and before I fell to the uh, lowest state of being a university administrator and went over to the dark side, as the faculty would uh, think of it, I was uh, a college <laughs> professor at Georgetown for 16 years. And among other things, I taught a course in uh, modern church history. When I came here to, to Boston, 
uh, I was invited to offer a version of a course in the history of Christianity, modern Christianity, at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. And so that's what I'm doing uh, right now. As a matter of fact, I had that, I had that class uh, earlier this morning. Nice. So you're fresh. You're ready. You're ready. Ready to dive We're in. Ready to go. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think what really drew me to 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 your work here, to to what you um, have been writing about, is this idea of of this being a really the, the lowest point um, of the papacy in uh, you know in church history. And, and you you use some really interesting terms to describe it. And we'll get into that first. But what I want to do for, first for folks that might not be church historians, probably the majority of people. Um, just set the scene. Tell us when when we are, where we are, and, and what's going on with the church vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the French Revolution in particular. I'll, I'll, I'll give a little spoiler. Sure. Well, um, certainly uh, my, my beginning point uh, with the Course and with our discussion today is uh, kind of the, the church in the later part of the 18th century, and especially let's take a look at the, uh, the church in France, uh, because it's in France, of course, that the revolution impacts things. So before the revolution, um, the situation of the church in France uh, could be described as a kind of cozy throne altar alliance uh, with the Pope as uh, somewhat of a distant figurehead. Um, the French church under the Ancien Regime, a term for the, uh, you know, the old French monarchy, um, possessed a great deal of wealth. The church was incredibly wealthy, the largest uh, landholder in France. Its bishops were typically aristocrats, second sons appointed by the king, and so they ended up being loyal to him uh, rather than to the pope. Uh, the church had almost entire control of education and most of what we would think of today as, as social welfare. Well, it's this situation that was transformed by the French Revolution. Uh, church lands were seized uh, by uh, the revolutionaries, uh, bishops became basically employees of the state and uh, were elected uh, rather than uh, appointed, and the Pope was effectively ignored in all of this. Um, as a result of these changes in the course of the revolution, the French church basically split down the middle, something like the church in China between a government-controlled church and an underground church that was loyal to the Pope. I'm interested, um, you know, you said that the, the bishops went from being appointed by the king uh, to being kind of employees of the state. So in both in both kind of situations, they're really not attached to the pope at all. Is that is that true? Is that it's it's true in this sense. The arrangement uh, under under the Ancien regime was one in which the papacy had basically uh, ended up assenting to all of this. And the pope was sent the names and asked to sign off on them, but it was basically, uh, you know, kind of, kind of pro forma. In the case of the revolutionary church, <clears throat> the pope was completely ignored. Uh, he, he was not consulted in, in any way. So it was effectively setting the French church up as a national church, an independent, autonomous national church that paid no attention to the papacy. That's so crazy because I feel like, you know, especially in the uh, in the North American context, in the United States particularly, you know, we're so used to separation of church and state and, and um, you know, the idea that the, the bishops would be appointed by the government um, seems so foreign. But I know that's obviously, you know, yeah. uh, not uncommon in history and even still in some cases today. spiritual role of the papacy really seems to be key here, right? That, that's, that split. 
I wonder if you could describe a little bit about what the papacy looks like in this moment, in the late 1700s, sure. right? What kind of power sure. is the Pope yep. wielding? Yep. What role do the papal states play? <clears throat> Uh, well, uh, as, uh, as I was mentioning, by the late 18th century, the, the, the Pope really is uh, merely a figurehead, not only in, in France, but, but uh, in, in a sense throughout the Catholic world. Um, he's effectively controlled by the absolute monarchs of Europe, the, the Catholic monarchs of Europe, the Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Spain, the King of Portugal, the King of, the King of France. And the greatest evidence of this is the ability of all of these uh, Catholic monarchs to force Clement XIV to suppress the Society of Jesus, which he does in 1773 uh, against his will. Um, on the other hand, uh, the Pope is a temporal ruler himself, ruling over the Papal States, which he possessed for a thousand years. Papal States, basically the central third of Italy. Um, the papacy certainly thought of the papal states as necessary for the independence of the papacy and its role in international affairs, but governing and defending the papal states was a great distraction for the popes and often made them even more dependent on the great powers for their defense and for the suppression of internal revolts, which happened frequently enough in the papal states. A lot of interesting things to dig in there, but I think one thing you said that I want to make sure listeners have a chance to um, unpack is, uh, is the suppression of the Society of Jesus. Because I know even, um, you know, for me, that was, you know, as, I, as I've done this work, uh, you know, something I learned about, and it wasn't something I necessarily knew, um, just kind of having affiliation with the Jesuit University, Jesuit Parish. So can you tell a little bit about what, what that was, why it happened? Because I think that plays into this sense of, of the Pope as, a, as an international player among, as you said, the great powers of the time. Well, it's an, it's an utterly fascinating story, and it's, it's somewhat complicated. Um, basically, it was a case of everybody ganging up on the Jesuits, and also certainly a case of um, uh, ecclesiastical politics making for strange bedfellows. So um, the, the opponents of the society were um, the absolute monarchs, by and large, who were looking for control, national, local control of the church in their own hands, whereas the Jesuits, of course, were an international order loyal to the Pope. The Jesuits were also uh, opposed by the Jansenists, which was kind of a reform movement within the Catholic Church, which had a very strict uh, theology, both, uh, both uh, kind of almost like Catholic Calvinists and a very strict moral theology. And they accused the, the Jesuits of being, liberal's not the right word, but, but um, they accused them of moral casuistry, excusing people's sins. They accused them of too close a relationship with the aristocracy and with the, the royal courts. Uh, they accused them of uh, a kind of naturalistic and semi-deistic theology. The Jansenists saw them as almost uh, Catholic uh, Catholic Enlightenment figures like the Philosophes, but then the Philosophes disliked the Jesuits as well. Um, even though people like Voltaire and Diderot had gone to Jesuit schools themselves, they disliked the Jesuits mostly because the Jesuits were, um, were probably their most prominent opponents and, um, and, 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 and the people paradoxically enough, most likely to be sympathetic with Enlightenment thought. But in a sense, it was a struggle between the Philosophes and the Jesuits over the control of intellectual and cultural life and educational institutions in France. So all of these forces, um, you know, uh, kind of allied with each other, ganged up against the Jesuits. 
Um, and in one kingdom after another, first in Portugal, then in Spain, then in France, and then ultimately in the whole church, um, the Jesuits were expelled and finally suppressed totally by uh, Pope, Pope Clement. Right. And then uh, we can we can kind of circle back to this later on, but I know and then obviously just to close the loop so people don't lose track, it was ultimately what Catherine the Great in Russia that, that, that helped to reinstate the Jesuits. Is that, is that right? She refused to publish the bull of suppression of the society. Um, and so officially uh, the Jesuits were never suppressed in Russia, so they continued a kind of clandestine uh, existence with really the tacit approval of the, of the papacy at this time. And, and that Jesuit remnant in Russia became the seeds, if you will, for the restoration of the society, which eventually happens in 1814. Right. Just, just a crazy time. And I, one of the things that I'm struck by as we're talking, um, you know, it, it seems like a lot of the, the games people were, were playing, especially, you know, rulers of the day, were trying to, again, control religion in uh, at the national level, right? That there's this 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 as you said, strange bedfellows between um, you know monarchs and and religious leaders trying to exercise this influence over over the people of the day. And again, it, this happens. We're talking about the 1700s, right? Late 1700s. But but certainly even today, we still see um, you know when when the toxicity of when religion becomes too politicized or too caught up in in um, in, in you know exerting influences. You know, I, I wonder if there, do you have any reflection there on on and you know what? What lesson can we can we apply to our own day uh, of this kind of national nationalization of religion? Sure. Well, I, I, you know, I think uh, it's it's really important that the church have an international perspective rather than simply a local perspective. It's really important that the church be in a position where it can exercise some kind of cultural critique of, of the society that surrounds it and not simply be under the, under the control of either government or other, other cultural forces. I mean, the church is called on to exercise a prophetic mission, uh, and that prophetic mission requires a certain degree of independence and of separation between uh, the church and political forces. So let's jump back into our timeline, right? So I, I'm struck again by this trade-off between temporal power and spiritual power when it comes to the papacy, the papal states, the pope. There's this begrudging surrender right of geographic influence and it's increasing assumption of a spiritual influence. So how does this shape our understanding, as you just said, right, of this universal faith? How does Catholicism differ today uh, if the pope still controlled all this territory? Sure. Well, that's a really critical uh, and important insight, Eric, and I'm very proud of you for having come to it. Um, it's no accident uh, that uh, as Pius IX loses control of the Papal States in the 1860s, that it's precisely at that point he makes the decision to call the First Vatican Council, or that the Council's decree on Papal infallibility is approved only days before Rome is invaded and declared the capital of the New Kingdom of Italy. Pius believed that his decision to call the council and the council's response to the crisis faced by the papacy in the decree on papal infallibility was guided by divine providence. And the consolidation and the dramatic expansion of the pope's spiritual power over the church, not only through the decree on infallibility, but through the assertion in the same degree of papal primacy, which is the 
immediate authority of the Pope over the whole church, was really the condition of possibility for the emergence of the unified and highly centralized universal church that we, that we see still today. And if the popes had had to worry about the papal states, they would still have had to worry about the politics of Italy and, and Europe. And I think as it was, the loss of the papal states was really a providential deliverance for the papacy that freed it to play a more universal and spiritual role, which it has ever since, really. Remind us when we lost the papal states. <clears throat> not we. When the when the papal states, uh, the, the the pope, not me. I wasn't involved. When the pope <laughs> lost the papal states. Uh, that happened progressively between about 1860 and 1870. Um, the Italian kingdom was established in 1860, minus most of the papal states. But um, when the um, when the troops, the French troops, who were basically defending the area around Rome left to fight in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. The Italians invaded and took over Rome. So, so just to recap in my mind here, the French Revolution, we see the deterioration of the church uh, in France, which very Catholic, very powerful to, to totally kicked out in many ways. Um, and then that really begins the slow um, uh, de decaying of, of, of church influence at that universal level we're discussing as, as monarchs are trying to seize more and more control. Um, if, if that's right, then how does this term uh, ultramontanism, which um, I, I didn't know until I read your work here, reflect any of this reality? And, and say more about, again, how Vatican I is, is used sure. to cement this. Sure. Well, uh, ultramontanism is uh, from a Latin word, uh, ultramontanus, which means over the mountain. And it, it really describes the tendency to uh, look to Rome and specifically to the pope as the source of unity and uh, authority in the church. And in that sense, Vatican I was really the triumph of the Ultramontanist movement and, and party in the church, uh, not only because of the decree on papal infallibility, which as many people would know, has only ever once been invoked when Pius XII defined the Assumption in 1950, but Ultramontanism really manifests itself in the decrees on papal primacy that I just mentioned. Um, in uh, the, the Vatican document, Vatican I document that defines papal infallibility, it also defines the primacy of the Pope, uh, where the Pope is declared to have the absolute fullness of supreme power in the Church as ordinary and immediate pastor over the whole Church with full and supreme power of jurisdiction. And that's basically to say that um, kind of after Vatican I, the Pope could intervene in any matter, at any level of the Church, at any time, and his decisions were not subject to revision by anyone. Certainly the clearest and most obvious exercise of the privacy is the uh, absolute and unfettered right of the Pope to appoint anyone he wants as a bishop and indeed to remove him too. And of course, when we're talking about the First Vatican Council, this is 1868-ish, right? 1870, yep. <clears throat> 1870, and, and you said it's 1670, yep. Pius the um, Ninth. And, and so it seems, again, like this, uh, you know, like to psychoanalyze it, I guess, like um, losing external influence and so trying to, to see what, what holding on to whatever is left to control, right, in, in some ways. Right. And that's where you would get this, um, this, this, this papal infallibility, um, you know, comes out of, and, and uh, yeah, the, the primacy of the Pope, you know, again, it seems so obvious now, um, but, but obviously was uh, a new thing in some ways then because just just and, and i know we'll we'll get to this a little later but just because of the change in in society and, and and communication you know the one thing that really again that really just i found so fascinating in, in your writing 
you've called this period after the French Revolution that culminates in Vatican I. And arguably, you know, even we see some in, in, in John Paul II's work, you know, one in which the church experienced PTSD, right? Post-traumatic yes, stress right. disorder. Well, <laughs> what do you mean by that? That's such a, it's such a, um, an interesting term to apply to church history. Yeah, and uh, you know, when I was thinking about the period and thinking about the course, it, and and of course, you know, we, we've all had some experience of, of folks who, who suffer from, from from PTSD. It occurred to me that the church was undergoing something of the of, of the same experience. So let me let me see if I can explain that just uh, just a little bit. So, um, in the course of the French Revolution, uh, the revolution uh, revolutionary armies in um, the late uh, late eighteenth century. Uh, basically had invaded Rome. They deposed the, the aged Pope, uh, Pius VI. They drove the Curia out of Rome and they declared a Roman Republic, so take, taking over the Papal States. Um, they seized Pius, they took him a prisoner, and they dragged him over the Alps in the middle of winter to France where he died shortly thereafter as a prisoner of the revolution. There were lots of people, um, including faithful Catholics, bishops and priests, who thought that Pius was probably gonna be the last Pope and that the papacy had outlived its usefulness. And really there was a question after he died whether there would even be another conclave to elect a Pope. Rome was occupied, no, the Curia was scattered, um, cardinals, no cardinals had been appointed in many years. The number of cardinals was at a historic low. And it took over six months for a rump of cardinals to gather in, in Venice, not in Rome, under the protection of the Austrians, and to elect Pius' uh, successor, Pius VII. But it was not clear that he would be uh, allowed to be recognized or allowed to return to Rome to, to exercise his office. About so, what years are we talking about here? Uh, 1799. Okay. Mm -hmm. 1799, yeah. So these events really uh, represented the, 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 the nadir of the papacy, a, a truly a near-death experience when it wasn't clear to many contemporaries that the institution would survive. And one can argue that, that this event and the other shocks, Pius VII also ended up as a prisoner of Napoleon in France for a period of time. Given also through the 19th century, the hostility of anti-clerical liberals, socialists, and even conservative nationalists like, like Bismarck, the attacks on the papal state, these all drove the church into something analogous to a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, arguably for the rest of the century, and especially uh, the church and especially the papacy, believed that it was under threat and that its, its very survival was at stake and often reacted accordingly, uh, seeking to make the position and the authority of the popes unassailable, whence the First Vatican Council and the Ultramontane Movement and the imposition of papal authority over every aspect of the church's life through the rest of the century and well thereafter. Um, it's really an interesting question uh, whether, for example, John Paul II's reassertion of papal authority, which was prominent in, in his own papacy, was from his own perception that the church was still under threat, as certainly he must have thought it was from communism, from, from secularism, and from, um, from neoliberalism and uh, unrestrained capitalism. And of course, uh, you know, John Paul II had, had uh, exerted a lot of control kind of within the church, as you said, over, over bishops and things, but it's not like popes, you know, immediately pr pr uh, before him weren't also powerful, weren't able to pool bishops and, and, and others, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of John the 23rd calling Vatican II. Obviously that he, he had control, just a different kind of, sure. of influence and control. 
Um, I know speculative uh, history is, is uh, you know, of, of limited use, but what do you think, you know, let's say the, the papacy hadn't come back. What, like, you know, would, would we be here talking? Uh, would, would there be a Catholic church if there was no uh, papacy in the way that we, uh, you know, understand it today or if it had played out differently? What, you know, what, you must have thought about this in your, in your research. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously it would be a, a very different church. It would be a much more national church, uh, a much more local church. Um, you know, um, localism and subsidiarity are, are, are good things and in some ways are important values, but universality is, is really important as well. And, uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church is one of the few truly universal institutions in, in the world that can speak uh, to people from every culture and, 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 and every background, and, 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 and that's tremendously important. And, and also, uh, not being exclusively local or, or national, uh, again, offers that opportunity for the possibility, at least, of a countercultural and prophetic witness uh, on the part of the church, which is, is, is less available when you're, you're kind of confined to a, a particular uh, national culture. And uh, even the American church, I think, is benefited by that universal perspective because you know we tend to be fairly um, sometimes fairly fairly local and, and fairly fairly insular ourselves but you know our, our engagement with the universal church with Latin America for example in particular with the church in Asia and Africa you know gives us a perspective on what it means to be a Christian and a Catholic that we wouldn't have if we weren't part of a universal church yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously, I think you're right. And that being able to have a little bit of separation between church and state, uh, even just a little, is, is so key to, to that. And I, I think, too, of, in Fratelli Tutti, I think, you know, Pope Francis talks a lot about um, our roles in the local, uh, you know, dynamics, but also in the global dynamics and how there's a need to, to move sure. back and forth. Um, so, obviously, you know, that's not what happened. The, the, the papacy was restored. Uh, and, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about then this, this ultramontane church. What, what was the influence it had on Catholic culture, uh, on the Catholic imagination? Um, again, as you said, you know, the Pope was able to influence culture and traditions. Um, so what did, what did that mean for, for Catholics just in, in regular life? Sure. Um, well, again, you know, starting with the, with, with the 18th century, one, one could argue that the, the church really existed in, in a kind of unitary relationship between culture, society, and society. It was all, all one entity, state, culture, and society, and it, it, was, it was an organic whole. But in the course of the 19th century, the church began to dissociate itself, as we've been discussing already, certainly from the state, but also from many aspects of contemporary culture, and also from secular uh, social movements and organizations. And really, the 19th century saw the emergence of a distinct and separate Catholic culture that is encompassed under the concept of Catholicism, which is really, in a sense, a new, a new term and a new concept for Catholics, a new cultural reality for the church. Um, I think all of us have some understanding of what the concept means, but especially older Catholics like me who grew up in the pre-Vatican II Church, it's the idea and the reality of an all-encompassing Catholic culture that permeates every aspect of your life, your parish, your education, your social, and even your political relations and allegiances. It has or had its physical man manifestation in this explosion of Catholic infrastructure, the churches, the schools, the convents, the colleges and universities, 
which most Catholics live most of their lives within, and also in the dramatic increase in the course of the 19th and well into the 20th century in the number of vocations, the number of religious congregations that staff these institutions, especially religious congregations of women. Um, this unitary, autonomous Catholic culture was uh, certainly fostered by the Ultramontane movement, which looked above all for Catholic unity, uniformity, solidarity, discipline, and obedience. And the popes, of course, were the principal source of that unity and solidarity, and very often the articulators of that culture in the flood of encyclicals that emanated from the Vatican uh, from the time of Leo XIII onwards. Arguably, and especially for those of us who can remember it, there were truly wonderful things about this Catholic culture. And it had a tremendous impact on shaping Catholics and the community uh, that we were. But it was also, of course, exclusive, hostile to outsiders, insular, and often intellectually stultifying. And it was also highly hierarchical, patriarchal, and clerical culture, and we know some of the problems that that has, has gotten itself into. Yes, we certainly do. Um, what, as, as, um, as, you're, as you're talking, as I'm listening to your, this reflection, it, it occurs to me, you know, like, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about my grandparents, you know, my grandparents came from very Catholic, sure. um, Catholic countries, and, and, and those kind of Catholicism as, as a, an immigrant experience. But, um, and obviously, you know, as people have moved and, and, and changed and, and grown and, uh, you know, that, that closeness of, of literal neighborhoods is, isn't as prevalent, um, you know, certainly in certain parts of our country it is, but, but, but not in my experience anymore. But two, two kind of holdovers of this Catholic culture that come to mind immediately, um, you know, that I think we're still trying to grapple with is, is um, the Catholic vote, quote unquote, and how there's a, yeah, there's a Catholic sure. voting block, but not really. Yeah. And also our, um, if you're in kind of literary circles, and I'm sure you, you, you've thought about this too, um, but kind of Catholic authors, you know, what is Catholic fiction? Right. You know, and, and, um, and both of those things uh, don't really exist anymore or have, have or exist in a very different way than, than this very unitary culture, as, as you're describing. Sure. Right? Is, this, is that a fair comparison? Oh, ab absolutely. I, I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, clearly um, these were easier questions to, to answer in an older time when the identity of the the Catholic community and a shared common culture were as important as they were. I mean, in politics, notoriously, there were there were Catholic machines. I live in I live in Boston, and and you know Boston was effectively controlled once the Irish became a majority by a, a Catholic uh, political political machine, and Catholics voted uh, pretty much in 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 lockstep. Um, and you know, similarly, it was easy enough to to think of what it meant to be a Catholic, a Catholic novelist, um, because again, people operated out of such a coherent, cohesive, tight knit culture where um, you know the values and the symbols were 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 clear to everybody. Um, it's certainly uh, you know there's certainly great um, great uh, writers who are Catholics these days, but the idea of the Catholic novelist is, is a much more difficult concept today than it, than it, than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's crazy to think that, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm being too general, but, but, you know, in some ways, you, you, if you go back to when the papacy almost vanished and then reemerged in this very ultramontane, you know, uh, dynamic that, that impacts the way we may or may not have read, you know, Catholic novelists. Sure. 
know, I um, I want to go back to the person of the Pope because I think that's so central, obviously, to, to what we're talking about, but to, to how we understand Catholicism today. And I think, you know, first among the cultural shift that you, you were just describing is that cult of personality that has grown up around the Pope. You know, you noted that, that Pius the, the Sixth assumed a role of martyr in some ways. Yep. Maybe you can say more about that. But then Pius the, the Seventh becomes this resistance hero almost. Correct. You know, these, these yep. weird kind of personas. Um, so how is the shift, maybe maybe say a little bit about that, uh, and, then, and then talk about how has the shift achieved global good? Where does it give you pause? And then, you know, is there a future where the Pope doesn't have this this all-star status for good or for bad? Sure, sure. Good, good questions. Great, great questions. Oh, well, um, uh, you know, um, uh, yes, yeah, cert- certainly, um, a Pius the Sixth and Pius the Seventh began began the trajectory, in a sense, of uh, of, of of cult of personality uh, for the Pope. Pi- Pius the Sixth again die, dying as a prisoner of the French of the French Revolution. Uh, Pius the Seventh standing up to uh, to Napoleon at various stages of his career, and then subsequent popes, uh, really Pius the Ninth, affectionately known as Pio Nono, and then uh, obviously um, Leo the Thirteenth, uh, Saint Pius the Tenth, uh, Pius the Eleventh, uh, and then then Pius the Twelfth, and of course uh, um, John the Twenty Third. Uh, well, all of the all of the all of the twentieth century popes. Um, What's, what's really different about the popes in the 19th and 20th century is that, number one, because of modern means of communication in particular, uh, people knew who the pope was in the 17th or 18th century. Most Catholics probably didn't even know who the pope was. Uh, they, they would have no image of him whatsoever. Nobody, very few people knew what the pope looked like. But beginning with, you know, modern photography in the second half of the the 19th century, it would have been the rare Catholic home that didn't have a portrait of, of the Pope hanging on the wall. And, and this began with, with Pius IX and continued with, uh, with every, every Pope subsequently. Um, clearly, this uh, cult arguably reached its uh, apotheosis in the rock star status of the globe-trotting JP II. Um, but the papal cult of personality was inevitably facilitated, if not determined, as well by the exaltation of the position and the role and the authority of the popes that was the goal of the ultramontane movement and the outcome of the First Vatican Council that we've, that we've already talked about. It wasn't just the personalities, it was also the positions that they, that they occupied. Uh, yeah, mostly I think the impact of um, of of this cult, uh, if you will, uh, that's some, sometimes thought of as somewhat pejorative, but um, the impact of of papal visits and and pronouncements and the visibility of the papacy has been, I think, for the good, um, an important witness to to Christian values and human solidarity. We we've just seen that manifested once again in the the courageous trip of of of, of Francis to to Iraq. Um, but, you know, uh, the church is more than the papacy and, and, and more than the pope. And one sometimes wonder whether, whether the cult of the, the pope has in some ways short-circuited it or, or at least overshadowed important processes of, of subsidiar- subsidiarity, localism, consultation, and collegiality, which are also part of our identity as Catholics. Mm. What role ultimately have the Jesuits played in this history, both in supporting um, or challenging the ultramontane church, uh, and then did the you know again return to the suppression of the yeah. society? How does that memory factor into yeah. how things have yeah. pro- uh, progressed? Yeah, well, uh, the, 
These are, that's a, that's a great question, and I'm afraid uh, I have to say that uh, with only a few qualifications, uh, on the whole, the 19th century Jesuits were uh, among the greatest uh, advocates of the ultramontane movements and um, the fiercest uh, advocates of the decree on papal infallibility. And indeed, uh, some, uh, some opponents uh, of the First Vatican Council, including those within the church, um, believed that the council was a kind of Jesuit cabal. Um, that's probably too strong a statement, but, but again, certainly the Jesuits were strong, strong supporters of, of the decree on, on papal infallibility. And you would have been hard-pressed through most of the 19th century to find Jesuits who did not tow this, this, this company line. Um, I think that, that the suppression is essential to understanding the attitude of the society toward the papacy and the ultramontane movement, because the suppression was really the Jesuits' own near-death experience. Uh, indeed, not, not near-death, but actual death. They were, they were officially suppressed. And uh, when they were resurrected, um, I, I think they shared the, the PTSD of the papacy and saw the uh, revival of the papacy and its exaltation as inseparable from their own continued survival. They were, they were, they were connected uh, uh, at every level with, with, with the, uh, the 19th century ultramontane papacy. Now, obviously, this began to change as we move into the mid-20th century and toward Vatican II, and uh, certainly we, we know um, the names of Jesuits who, who led the way, and, and indeed some of whom suffered for trying to move the church in, in, in new directions. One thinks of John Courtney Murray or even, uh, even Karl Rahner himself. What, um, just briefly, what were some of those uh, internal thinkings among Jesuits or, or just reading of the Science of the Times that, 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 begun that began that shift? Well, um, I, I think um, as, as Jesuits became more and more interested in new intellectual currents, both outside and, and inside the church, uh, um, they, they saw that there were certain inadequacies, inadequacies in the way in which theology was being presented. Theological education was typically uh, out of what were called manuals, which were effectively glorified catechisms. Uh, and, 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 and Catholic theology uh, was really resistant to any kind of engagement with, with modern thought. And, and uh, you know, a number of important Jesuits thought it was critically important for Jesuits to in engage with modern thought if it was going to speak credibly to the, to the modern world. Somebody like John Courtney Murray, Courtney Murray, for example, who's famous for his arguments about the compatibility between liberal, uh, democ liberal democratic forms of government and Roman Catholicism, was swimming against a tide which, uh, uh, which basically saw the relationship between church and state as one which had to be officially established through some kind of recognition. But, you know, he was an advocate for, um, you know, basically a free church and a, and, and a free state, and he, he suffered... Uh, uh, from that because uh, he was told that he couldn't publish on this topic by advocates of the older model of church-state relationships. It's, uh, it was interesting to me, like I know, obviously, St. Ignatius, you know, way back at the beginning of the Jesuits, um, you know, they, they take this, this fourth vow, right? And it's, it's not so much to the Pope, but it's, it's to go where the church needs Jesuits most, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of the Jesuit formation. And um, it, it's just, uh, as I, and let's listen to this story here, it's just, 
uh, you know, where the church needs them most, you know, and, and you, you see them right there uh, supporting the papacy in this, you know, one moment, making it, uh, you know, super inward, you know, strong, um, but then maybe, you know, that, that vow takes, takes, uh, takes Jesuits outside of the church. And it's like, you know, it's just interesting to, to think about what, what obedience, you know, means yeah. and, and how it, yeah. how it evolves. No, again, it's a fascinating transformation and, uh, you know, a fascinating story um, to see the way in which the Jesuits were basically in lockstep with the ultramontane uh, papacy, but, but then um, became in some ways, um, you know, some of the strongest advocates for new ways of thinking in the church that emerged uh, most powerfully in the Second Vatican Council. Let's jump to um, to more present day matters. Um, I'm curious how you see ultramontanism playing out in the church's current international geopolitical sure. um, role. Particularly, yeah. I know you've written on, on uh, the church vis-a-vis China. Um, I know that the church at the United Nations is, is always kind of an interesting yep. for folks that are in that kind of an interesting paradox, sure. maybe, and even in our own our own continent. Yeah, I, as you mentioned, I, I, I wrote a piece in America on the parallels between the way in which the papacy cooperated with Napoleon to end the schism that we talked about within the Catholic Church after the revolution and what Pope Francis is trying to do in in China. And and, and here's the parallel as I see it. Um, Pius VII, uh, at the behest of Napoleon, um, exercised powers that a pope had never exercised before and anticipated, really, the position of uh, Vatican I on papal primacy by dismissing every single bishop in France from their sees, both bishops of the government church and of the old loyal underground church, and appointing new ones. This was the way in which he saw uh, the possibility of overcoming uh, the schism, the division within within the French church. And, of course, uh, he certainly did this at the behest of Napoleon as well, who was looking to basically pacify the French church. Francis has attempted something analogous in China by encouraging, as we know, the resignations of some bishops of the underground church, and then by confirming the appointments of sitting bishops in the patriotic church. Um, But, you know, this is something he could only do on an understanding of the absolute authority of the pope in appointing bishops that we talked about before, and that was uh, effectively uh, defined in the First Vatican Council. Um, situation of the, of the church in, in the United Nations uh, and its international position in general is an interesting one. Uh, the church has always insisted that it had international standing as the Holy See, that is, as a sovereign entity, which is the seat of the Roman Catholic Church, and not interestingly enough as a territorial entity, either as the Vatican City State or as the old papal states. And it's as the Holy See per se that the Vatican receives and sends its own ambassadors, whom it calls nuncio, and has permanent observer status in the the United Nations. Um, Clearly, it's only through the the Pope and his position that the Church has international standing, so that whatever defines or clarifies that position, as Vatican I did, assists in establishing this standing, uh, especially after the loss of the Pope's own territory. Um, after Vatican I, it became clear to everyone, and to the bishops of the United States or of any national church, that they effectively owed their appointments to whomever was reigning Pope. And as we've seen uh, in, in our own country, one result of this papal 
uh, prerogative has been the phenomenon of, of bishops who are associated with, uh, with the pope who appointed them, the, the JP2 bishops, and certainly now the, Fran the Francis bishops. And this has caused some division within the American church. <clears throat> and there are as well tensions in the church between collegiality, subsidiarity, and synodality that are legacies of the Second Vatican Council and of the papal monarchy of Vatican I and the Ultramontane movement. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, there's, there's, there's clearly still power at work, right? You know, that, that you're, as you said, like the bishops say, oh, okay, that I'm getting my power from the Pope, not from the national leaders. Um, so again, just kind of that, that temporal power to spiritual power and who gets it and how do you influence it? it you know, it's obviously the kind of the story of, uh, it's, it's an unavoidable story in our, in our faith and I'm sure in other, other churches and religions as well. Yeah, and it manifests itself in, the, in, in a kind of struggle to define just what the rights and responsibilities, for example, of the USCCB are. I mean, what, mm -hmm. what, what, what role does the Catholic Conference have? Can it legislate for the other bishops? Or are bishops all completely independent and uh, answerable only to the, to the papacy and not to their peers? And, you know, that's manifested itself in some of the difficult issues that the American church has faced over sexual abuse and, you know, political relations with, uh, with the state and, and, uh, and with different political leaders. So last question, um, just to reflect, reflect with us, why, why should listeners care? Why does this matter to uh, the spiritual life, the, uh, you know, personal communal life of, of people um, that are maybe coming to this information um, for the first time? Yeah, well, um, I mean, it, it's, it, it really helps us to, to understand a little bit better uh, what it means to be a member of the church, because what the church is and how we understand it affects our sense of, of just what it means to be, uh, what it means to be a Catholic. Um, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't have a constitution, but if it did, uh, I would argue that it would uh, be Poster Eternus, the decree on papal primacy and infallibility that established the church as an absolute papal monarchy, uh, modified insofar as it has been by the teachings of the Second Vatican Council on the collegiality of bishops and the relationship of the church in, in the modern world. So, you know, the question for us all is how, how, how do we react? How do we respond? to the way the papal office uh, has been exercised in the last 200 years, is being exercised today, especially since, uh, since the Second Vatican Council. You know, do, do we see the popes as heroic leaders of a church under threat, or has the exaltation of the papal office that we've been discussing uh, contributed to clericalism and patriarchy in the church, which are important issues? Um, um, sometimes, of course, our response has to do with our perception of the Pope who is in office, but I, I don't think we should let our admiration for one Pope or our distaste for another shape our answers to these questions, because in the end, it, it, it is, you know, once again, really a matter of how we see ourselves as members of the Church engaging its complicated history and its present reality and, again, what it means to be a member. I like so many things that have to do with faith. It seems like we have to recall to live in this creative tension, right? Um, and, uh, and and continue to to, to you know uh, discern yeah. the working of the spirit, uh, no matter who we are, where we are. Yeah, and uh, you know the benefit of a historical perspective is, is it gives us a sense that 
Uh, the church was not always as it is now. It was different uh, in the past, and there's nothing, in a sense, to prevent it from being, um, you know, somewhat, somewhat different in the present as well. You know, holding fast always to the conviction that the Holy Spirit is is with us, and that the the church continues to faithfully witness to um, to its Master, and uh, can never go entirely wrong in that witness. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Father Narx, this has been so interesting. I really appreciate your time and your Absolutely. reflections. Uh, thank you so much. I hope you have a good, uh, a good rest of your, your uh, semester. Thanks very much, Eric. Great to talk with you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Mike Jordan-Lasky, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at at Jesuit News, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and at Facebook, facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>